0: Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. On this episode, I am joined by Jeffrey Ballone. JB is the founder of Mets Fix, and be sure to sign up for the Metropolitan Newsletter for all of your Mets news and analysis. JB and I discuss the new site and then dive into a number of Mets topics, as spring training has recently begun and the season is less than a month away. All right, I'm joined by JB from the Metropolitan and the Mets Fix is the Twitter account. JB, I've really been enjoying reading your guys' content of late now with the season coming around. I just wanted to start off by asking you, when did you guys get the Metropolitan started, kind of what the goals are and what you see in the future for this for this site?
1: Yeah, yeah. And thanks for having me on. Um, I, I actually started, it's kind of a funny story. I started the Metropolitan... Um, I'd done a newsletter with Jonathan Macri called Nick's Film School, and uh, I had always kind of thought, I wonder if this idea would work with another team. So I, I started the Mets one, and I guess it was November. And then um, randomly, uh, someone reached out to me on Twitter, and uh, it was kind of funny. I always say it shows you the check mark matters because he's at least verified, and I saw he had some journalist background. And he said, "Hey, I, I kind of had the same idea. Uh, do you want to talk?" and um, Long story short, from there, me and him decided to do this together, and then we turned it into, um, you know, uh, Metropolitan. It's kind of confusing with our name because it's Metropolitan's a newsletter, but MetsFix is really what, you know, the way to find us, MetsFix.com. Um, but yeah, so we've been doing it since, I guess, December, January timeframe there.
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome. I've been really enjoying the content. I find that it's a nice mix of the analytics, but also kind of that fan opinion-based content too. As far as trying to differentiate yourself, obviously there's a lot of different players out there, even from a Mets perspective. Is there something specific that you guys are focusing on moving forward? Anything planned for more in-season type content?
1: Yeah, I mean, it'll be different. I mean, it's funny, you could never do a Mets newsletter any other offseason, right? I mean, to think we started going every weekday in January it's like if it was any other time, you know, there'd be nothing to write about because they didn't do anything. But this year there was tons of things, you know, whether it was Chase and Bauer or, um, you know, obviously at the Lindor trade, but yeah. So it'll be a little different now that when we get into season because we actually have games to cover and ironically we've been doing it without any games. Um, But yeah, like like you said, we try to mix it up where we give like a summary of what has happened, but we don't want to just be like a game recap either, even though it will still come each morning. Um, it's sort of like, okay, if someone's struggling at the plate, why? So we try to give like, for the casual fan, this is what happened. If you don't even watch the games, but you want to know what happened, you can come to us and get it. But if you're more of a diehard fan and you're into getting to, you know, all the analytics, you can also come to us.
0: Yeah, no, I find that baseball can be a challenge to cover just in the fact that, A lot of people are trying to, in the past few years, especially with this analytical era, kind of discount the eye test and make it all analytics. But at the same time, I think if you're watching every Met game, obviously there's some element to it of that eye test. And I've enjoyed the fact that you guys have a lot of visuals on the site, not just the analytics, but also visuals kind of explaining them. And I think that's definitely helpful for the average fan who, while they want to kind of keep that old school opinion involved at the same time, it's almost it's almost a necessity to back that up with the analytical data at this point, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny because you know I I always have like the constant battle with with my dad, who's kind of more traditional fan, and the conversations we have. And it, and it's funny though because you know I'll try to come at him with all the all the analytics, and then sometimes it's like just him watching the games. He'll pick up something that I don't studying the stats, and it and it shows you that you know it, it does matter what you see, but. I think it is about how it's presented. So right now, there's a lot of sites, you know, whether it's baseball perspectives or fan graphs, who they're tailored for a certain type of audience. And I felt like beyond just Mets coverage, there's a bit of a gap of people writing about um, numbers or analytics, but in a way that's approachable to people. Um, and you're mentioning about the graphics. I have this funny thing where it's like I try. I might write a whole piece on like exit velocity, and I actually might only put two or three stats in the piece, ironically, because I'm more talking about the concept and leading into it. Because if you're just throwing the numbers out, I think a lot of people are going to you know, kind of be cross-eyed by the time they read it.
0: Absolutely. I wanted to just dive into some Mets content with spring training starting a few days ago and finally some game action. I know Alderson mentioned two days ago the possibility, of course, all the noises around extending Canfor Lindor, but he mentioned Syndergaard did you think it was interesting that he did not mention Marcus Stroman in that same, in that when he was talking about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess it's um, yeah. We're always going to look at who he does. doesn't bring up the, the tough part is the Mets have so many guys, right. That are due. So I think it's more about that than it is necessarily about, you know, how they, how they view Stroman. Um, you know, it's going to be tough, right? Because they, you know, they have these aren't going to be small contracts either. I mean, Lindor and Conforto could be two of the top paid guys on the market. And then if Syndergaard, it's kind of funny, like if he comes back and pitches well, which obviously Mets fans, we all hope he does, that really could change his market too. And then Stroman, we saw in his first start, I mean, you know, he he's got his new split change he's throwing and um, you know, he, he was out all at 2019. So we, we don't, or 2020. So we don't know, you know, how that impacts him. but the point is he could have a big season too. So I guess I didn't find it strange just because there's so many guys, but I do think they're going to be in an interesting situation where each one of them on their own could be very expensive to keep.
0: Yeah, no. And they're all coming off kind of different seasons. Conforto, I guess it's how you, ever you want to judge the 60 game season, but it was obviously a star last season. And then, with Syndergaard, if you're him, I feel like you'd be more inclined to try and show what you're capable of this season because he's coming off a more of a, kind of a rough season for him. So I don't know if he has as much incentive to re-sign prior to showing what he's capable of coming off of Tommy John. Of those three guys, is Lindor the guy that you would hope they re-sign the most?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like he's the one I'm most optimistic that they could get a deal done even before the season. Um. And he, has, he does have a longer track record than Conforto. I mean, if you're a Mets fan, you always like the guy who came up through the system. Um, but that said, you know, it wouldn't shock me if Conforto, like I said, we had a 60-game season last year, if he came back to down to earth a little bit, where Lindor, you know, we've seen it over time. I mean, I know he had a bad season last year, but, you know, we know what he is. Um, but, you know, we're splitting hairs between those two. I think they're both going to be top-level players, but... I guess with Lindor, maybe just because we have a little more to go off, I would feel a little safer right now with him.
0: I agree. I think Lindor, especially just given what he's capable of defensively, it's harder to find shortstops with that offensive talent as compared to the outfield. Another question, I know we brought up Stroman. Last, uh, yesterday after his start, he, was, he has obviously been very confident. That's always been kind of p- part of his personality but do you think there's almost a fine line with Stroman between his confidence and maybe being mixed up for some arrogance? I mean, from a fan's perspective, I enjoy it, but do you think from an outsider's perspective, if you're not a Met fan, you might view it as view it that way?
1: Yeah, I, I I think definitely. And I've seen even, you know, in some of the comments he gets, it's sort of, it's interesting time we live in because you, you, how do you not like Stroman in some ways, you know, the way he's just like open to everyone. He's trying to improve his craft constantly But I think people just generally have that feeling of, you know, someone who they feel like talks a lot. And even if he's not really talking a lot, it's just that he's on social media. So you see it more than you did in the old days. They want to see results. And it's like that classic New York thing, I feel like of, you know, okay, if you're going to talk a big game, you better show up and do it. So I I wouldn't be surprised if that's how a large part of fan base reacts. If he comes out this year and he's not very good. Um, but to, more to, I guess, your question of, um, you know, the, the overconfidence, I mean, it, it's tough. I mean, you need to be confident to be good at something. Um, it's almost like with a baseball player, you know, any professional athlete, if they're not arrogant or they're not a little, you know, Michael Jordan's the best example, right? If they're not full of themselves, I don't know if they can compete on the same level. So, so I'm fine with it, but I could see why it rubs some people the wrong way.
0: No, that's a great point and great comparison. I think that also in baseball, sometimes personality is almost discouraged, unfortunately. Yep. So it's nice to have guys like Stroman and Lindor who kind of show that confidence on a consistent basis. So I'm excited about that. Um, going back a little bit more to the analytical aspect, I know that I kind of fall in this rabbit hole of saying, oh, well, this player is better because his he is a better war. That's fact. There's no argument here. Is there a specific analytic, whether it's war or something else that you find yourself constantly looking at, um, or are you trying to still kind of mesh that eye test with a lot of these different analytics? Is there one that you really focus on?
1: Well, I think when you look at hitters and pitchers, it's kind of two different animals. So with hitters, I feel more confident looking at war because I think it does a pretty good job of combining, you know, both offense and defense obviously defensive metrics have gotten better i think now with the statcast data than they were before um, but offensively in particular you know whether you want to use like wrc weighted runs created plus or just you know old fashioned like ops on base plus slugging i mean those are pretty telling stats you know they really are we're pitching it's it's really tricky because you can look at a guy's era and it just does not tell you a lot so if pitchers Especially nowadays, I like to look at you know their strikeout rate, and I like to look at the individual pitches because that's where, especially free agents, when you're you know looking at who the Mets were going to sign and, and trying to think will they be good, you know you can look at a guy's stats from two years ago, but if he changed his pitch mix, it's like a whole different guy you're looking at, you know. And Stroman's a good example. He has his split change now, you know he threw his sinker and he had a, a changeup and obviously a slider, but. He, he doesn't generate a lot of strikeouts when he throws, uses the sinker. That's, you know, he's getting ground balls. Well, if he has a split change now and that strikeout rate goes up, that sort of changes his, you know, overall his metrics. So um, long story short, I think for hitting, I feel good about the stats that are out there and, and I feel better about war for pitchers. I focus more on the strikeout um, you know, strikeout versus walks, and then some of just their individual pitch metrics, What, which, which pitches are getting swinging strikes, uh, things like that.
0: I think to your point, defense in any sport is probably the hardest, hardest aspect of the game to measure. I saw you guys posted recently a piece on Brandon Nimmo and how it benefited him to play deeper and how he's not really necessarily turning the right way, going back on balls with Nimmo and Davis, who as of right now, if there's no DH, it seems like they will be playing in the field on a pretty regular basis. Are you concerned about them? Is there one guy that concerns you more? Or do you think that they'll be able to improve defensively enough um, for their offense to make up for any of the downfalls there?
1: I mean, with Nimmo, at least with the uh, added outfielders, the Mets brought in, they can sort of maybe balance that a little bit when they need to. Where with Davis, I'm not as certain about because I mean, Jeff McNeil has played third and he looked pretty good at first, but then last year, I think, you know, he had a whole bunch of throwing errors. Um, but again, I think with McNeil, he would be fine just if he is kept at that position. Like I think he's an athlete that if you told him, Hey, you're going to be a third baseman, he would be good. The problem is he's, you know, he's going to be at second every day and then maybe he's playing third. And I don't think uh, Jonathan and they spell it Valar. And I guess you say it, the Vel- or something like that. Vel- or is it vr vr there you go there you go i can never get that one right <laughs> yeah vr and
0: uh is it pilar vr pilar, and pilar,
1: right yeah exactly so that's why i get confused with the two but <laughs> he's another one where um i think they brought him in to with the idea he's a utility player but he's played more to middle infield so I'm, I'm sort of dancing around their individual defense and saying you know the best way to have to hide guys who aren't great defensively is to sort of pick your spots where you can put some fillings. I think they have a better option with Nimmo than they do with Davis. Um, You know, Davis though, at the same time, you know, when you're playing third base, um, you know, to me in the outfield and, you know, we looked at the data, you're talking about maybe like eight to 10 balls that you know, Nimmo doesn't get to that. Maybe a, like one of the better or best center fielder does where in third base, you, you get more ground balls, you have more chances. So if you want to look at it that way, but um, I would say Davis is the one I'm a little bit more worried about than Nimmo to, to finally answer your question. <laughs> and I think the guy
0: we didn't mention too, is Dom Smith, who hopefully if there's a DH won't be having to play much if any left field I think as Mets fans, we often feel a little bit unlucky, and it seems like if there's no DH, there's not a team that that hurts more than the Mets, just given the situation they have with Smith and Alonzo. What intrigues me more about this team, though, is you mentioned with Almora um, and other options defensively, maybe late in games, is that it feels like for the first time in a while that if guys go down, there's other major leaguers to to kind of replace them for a week or two, whereas in the past we were calling up minor leaguers that didn't seem as adequate. So that's something that intrigues me for sure. And then as far as the bullpen goes, my main concern heading into the season is just the absence of Seth Lugo. I know they picked up Trevor may who should be able to solidify that eighth inning for now, but is, is there a guy you're looking at as maybe that third reliever outside of Diaz and may that can kind of fill that void in the first month or two?
1: (laughs) No, I think we're, we're searching like everyone, right? You know, you're you're hoping someone steps forward. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, I mean, even it's funny, I think even some fans feel like with um, uh, Sam McWilliams, when they signed him, like it's maybe not right away, but he's a guy that eventually comes up and and, and surprises people. Um, but no, I, I think I think it's it's anyone's best guess. You know, can can some of these other guys that we've lost faith in, uh, like familiar Batances, you know, actually step back up? I mean, Miguel Castro is one I think people, for you know, forget like about. You. And he fits kind of in that, in the middle of, you might not say like, okay, I can totally count on him, but he's by no means someone you are you know concerned about. So he's probably the best answer uh, of, until Lugo gets back.
0: Yeah. And I think the hope too, is that one of these starting pitchers that doesn't get that fifth spot, whether it's Uchesi or Yamamoto can hopefully be something in the bullpen. I feel like the bullpen for the most part, each year is kind of a crap shoot. The Mets haven't really been on the right end of the stick there the Past yep. few seasons, at least it is promising that Diaz looked like the Diaz that they traded for in the final month of the season. Is that the Edwin Diaz you expect to see in 2021, or do you think we're going to see more so of a mixture of 2019 and that and that
1: uh in the 2020 season? Um, yeah, well, I wrote something on Diaz recently where I mm-hmm. spent more time than I really wanted to going into <laughs> his, his numbers and mechanics. Um, but it was like I couldn't quite figure him out, you know, I was, I just it like his release point was really different last year between his fastball and slider. And I thought that was a problem, but then I looked at it closer and it was like, it had like no impact. Like in the games that his release point was like the furthest apart, he pitched okay. And the game that was closer, he didn't. Um, but what it comes down to is it seems like consistency with mechanics with him. When he does have a consistent rhythm and he hits his spots with, you know, with his fastball and getting people to chase with his slider, He obviously puts up great numbers. Will that carry over? What worries me is that there's nothing to suggest that like, okay, he was doing something wrong. He made an adjustment and now he'll do that adjustment forever. And it will continue sort of like James McCann. He figured out behind the plate, how to, you know, catch pitches low in his zone, And it seems like that will carry over where Diaz, it seems to me more, he just had a good stretch where he was better with his mechanics but you know, they're all over the place. If you look even last year, there's times that like his release, his release point was changing. There was times like he was better with his command and others. So I just don't know over six months, will he keep that consistent? Um, like I said, I just feel better if you said, okay, he started throwing his slider totally different than before, but it just it just wasn't that. It was just like, he was just consistent with his stuff and he got good results. But there's nothing to me that shows like a switch went off, it, you know, that I can guarantee he will continue to do that if that makes any sense.
0: No, it does. Diaz is a hard guy to figure out because even more so in the first month of this season, but even in 2019, it seemed like any time he missed his spot, it wasn't a single, it wasn't a line out or a deep fly out. It seemed like it was often a home run. Um, it just seems like any time he missed he paid for it. Whereas a guy with his stuff, you would think that he can afford a miss and get mm-hmm. some swinging misses or weaker contact. But it seems like anytime he did miss, he, it was, um, the Mets were paying for it. So it's almost like when he's in, you're kind of holding your breath. Although, yep. I mean, that's really the case with any Mets closer in the past. Although obviously in that final month, he was great. Something that, I mean, I may be overlooking this, looking too much into this, but something that I do think about is, How will he react if they do start to get more fans in the seats? I'm not sure, because the first season, I was kind of saying, this is more so just from watching the games, that I'm not sure that Diaz was built for New York and this market. So part of me thinks that when fans come into the games, that could have a slight effect on him. If he's succeeding, you would think the opposite. But um, Diaz is one of those guys that I think the Mets are banking on to do a good job in that ninth inning. And I think that a lot of their season, just like with any team, really depends on if he's able to close out games.
1: Yeah, no. And, you know, bullpens, they're just so temperamental. I mean, even look at the Dodgers, right? The, the most stacked team. And they're going into the year where, you know, they have Kenley Jansen and literally 75%. I mean, he's their all time greatest closer, but yet I'd say 75% at fan base is not confident in him at all. And, you know, it, it's just this this thing where it's so odd how you could have teams that are really good and how quickly you know, your closer, your eighth inning guy, you can lose faith in. You have a couple bad outings. Or like you said, with the fans, you know, it, it is a mental exercise of you're sitting out there in a bullpen all night, and then you come in and you could throw literally two pitches and be on the back page of the paper. And in, you know, and in New York, it's funny. I think that's a thing. People talk about the impact of the fans. I think the, the tabloids, like the New York Post, New York Daily News, there's few towns that have papers like that, where when you make a mistake, you blow a game you will literally be on the cover the next day. You know, if you're on in Seattle and whatever the Seattle times, or whatever the paper is like, you're just like maybe a little sub headline in the, in the corner of the paper. It's not like your face with like some ridiculous headline. So, so yeah, I think, I think that does have an impact. I think it's tough.
0: Yeah. No, it's also, yeah. As you mentioned, obviously being the closer for a New York team could be one of the most difficult jobs in baseball. It'll be interesting to see, too, with Rojas. I know that a lot of teams are kind are trying to move a little bit away from those designated reliever roles, and I know that's something that's kind of a hot topic in baseball overall because when the Mets had a great winning streak at the end of 2019 and were trying to make a push for that wild card, we saw that Lugo was coming in for basically two innings um, every other night almost and was able to get the job done. To me, I wonder how long the leash will be with the bullpen. I wonder what the what the strategy is from the front office. Because a lot of us obviously feel that the front office often has a has a lot of pull in these decisions. So I'm curious to see if that ninth inning, I think it will be Diaz's every night, but I'm curious to see how role-oriented this bullpen is overall, especially when Lugo comes back, because they do have a lot of viable arms. So it'll be interesting to see, because part of me thinks that if a starter comes out in the sixth inning and there's guys on and they have their three best hitters up, part of me thinks that you should sometimes bring in your best reliever, but we've seen that it's kind of the reverse in baseball. Do you have any feelings on that? Do you, do you subscribe to having designated roles in the bullpen or do you kind of think that based on the situation that should kind of dictate who comes in?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think this is again, where you're juggling the the numbers and the personalities. I mean, I know Trevor may, he was on a podcast right, right around when the Mets signed him. And I think he's actually on the um, simply amazing pod recently where he talked about the importance of roles. So I think there's some guys that like having, you know, this is my inning and they can now structure their whole night, their whole routine when, you know, they know when they're gonna start getting loose, when they're gonna, you know, when they have to feel good with their warmups. And then if you suddenly upset that, it throws them off. So I, I think that's what's always difficult, especially as fans watching from afar is, you know, we can look at the, you know, what they call the leverage of the situation. Like, okay, it's better. Like I said, it's a top at a seventh inning runners at second and third. This is actually the toughest outs to get. Not nobody on in the ninth with the three run lead, but you just don't know, like, how does Diaz respond having to come in then? And then back to what we we're talking about, how a lot with him is about him executing on his mechanics. That's where you know, that there's a lot of studies that say that clutch doesn't matter in baseball because over large samples, it just shows good players are good no matter what. That's that's what the stat nerds would kind of tell you. But I think what they overlook is, you know, you don't know an individual situation where you come in and it's a tense situation. And I mean, we all do it in everyday life, right? Like when you're nervous, you just, you're not as smooth in what you're doing. So, you know, I just think that's what you have to balance in terms of when you bring these guys in in different spots. If you feel like you have the right personalities to do that, then I think it obviously makes sense. But if your guys are the type that they seem better having their defined role, I think that makes sense. And that's that's how you find the balance depending on the team. Yeah, to your point, JB, I think it
0: certainly does depend on what those pitchers prefer. This is probably a, probably not the best comparison, but it's almost like, in the NBA, where most of these star players, they have their exact minutes regimented each game. They know they're playing the first eight minutes of the first, they'll come back in with six left in the second quarter. And I know that might not be the like to like comparison with these relievers, but I feel like, as you mentioned, they come in in the seventh for the first time all year and they struggle and they kind of think that, all right, well, I'm more suited for the eighth or ninth inning. So we'll see how Rojas handles it. I wanted to move over to the offense. I think that As a Mets fan, we kind of view the two strong points with this team as the starting pitching and the offense, and we're kind of waiting to see what happens with the defense and bullpen. But looking at the offense, I think this is one of the better offenses on paper the Mets have had in a while. Granted, I feel like I say that heading into most seasons. Um, I feel like there's five guys in this offense, whether it's Conforto, Alonzo, Smith, um, McNeil, or Lindor, who can kind of carry the offense at any given period. Between those guys, is there a guy that you would want to bet on this year that you think is going to have
1: that monster season? Um, I mean, I, I like the, I like the idea of Lindor obviously having a bounce back season. You know, he had a rough twenty twenty for his standard. Um, I to me, it's actually that collection. Like when you know, I, I remember one day I was like, I was spending so much time writing about the offseason in terms of who, what they needed, the gaps they had that then I took a step back and I'm like, wait a minute, like I'm looking down this lineup and it's like, it's actually kind of ridiculous. Like this is the Mets lineup. just growing up as a Mets fan. Like so many times, like going in, you know, they have like the lineup above the escalator when you walk yes, in the city and it's the like, tops cards. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you're going up and you're like, there's not one player I'd even want their tops card, let alone, like, it's just like, it was automatic out. So the fact that now there's so many guys is exciting and, And even the star power of the lineup, I mean, there were, there were years where I feel like you went to the Mets game and only jerseys you saw people wore were of older players, strawberry, whatever. Right. Where now it's like, yeah, is it going to be Alonzo Lindor? So I know it's not directly answering the offense question, but it it sort of does in a sense of you have guys with pedigrees um, and you have guys who are starting to come into their peak, whether that's Nimmo in Conforto or even obviously Alonzo. So you know, I'm just, I just think this offense, I mean, even when you get to the bottom of the lineup, like McCann and Davis, you know, you can make an argument that, you know, there's holes in their game, but like, you know, that's pretty good if they're batting seventh and eighth. Um, So I feel really, really good about the offense.
0: I agree. There have been so many seasons as a fan. I'm sure, you know, that after the five spot, after the five spot comes up, they'll come out, they'll get a one, two, three inning defensively. And then you're thinking as a fan, really, what am I excited for? We'll be back out there in two minutes. And I think that we can hopefully avoid that this season. As you mentioned, even a guy like Davis, we saw in 2019 at points was their most consistent offensive player. And I know McCann's made some adjustments in his offensive game. I was hearing yesterday how he kind of went to an open stance. I saw you guys wrote something actually about his hard hit rate and exit velocity mm-hmm. compared to Real Muto. Now that I bring that up, can you actually elaborate on that and kind of maybe talk to us about James McCann and the season he had last year and kind of what to expect from him offensively?
1: Yeah, well, it's funny he was the one signing I wasn't actually thrilled with. Um, not really because I wanted Real Muto, but just because I didn't see why you had to spend forty million dollars on on McCann. I've warmed up, uh, you know, a little bit to him because um, I think he brings a lot of different things. So you know, it's not just a little bit of offense, but he improved his his catching metrics, as well as, you know, just his relationships with, with pitchers, apparently he's a, you know, a good battery mate to have, but yeah, I mean, in that article in particular, we are looking at, um, you know, exit velocity is something that now like everyone kind of overuses, but it's just, you know, how hard do you hit the ball? But what uh, Tom Tango, who's kind of like the brainchild behind all this Statcast cast numbers um, I was talking to him about it. And he basically said that, If you want to be predictive, so it's one thing being descriptive. How hard did you hit the ball? Now we know 102 miles an hour. But if you want to be predictive, it's better to look at um, the distribution of the hard hit balls. So how often is a player hitting the ball really hard? And McCann had, um, while his average exit velocity was the same as real Muto's, when you look at their distribution, So let's just say you hit the ball 100 mile an hour or 75. That means one time you might've hit a home run and another time it was like a soft hit ball. Well, your average is going to be obviously somewhere in the middle there. Versus if you hit it both times 75, then you had two, your average is the same, or I meant to say 150. Yeah. That your average is the same, but the person who had that one really hard hit ball has a better outcome. So kind of hard to explain, I guess, saying it out loud, especially when I mixed up the numbers. But the point is that you want to have more a distribution of harder hit balls and McCann didn't have it quite as much where it looked like if you looked at the numbers, he was closer to real Muto than he really was.
0: No, I'm excited to see McCann. I think also I enjoyed Wilson Ramos. I think he's a very likable player and. Despite the, what seemed like games where he'd ground out to third base 15 times in a row. Um, I, he obviously produced offensively, but I think we did get killed defensively with him. And I think it'll be nice to finally have a guy even seeing yesterday in the spring training game, a guy that can throw out base runners. Because I think the Mets have struggled in the past few seasons of holding guys on base, whether it's center guard, um, it was mats in the past, but that's definitely been something that they've struggled with. And that can be extremely frustrating when in the past there have been offenses that have been less potent and we have these great pitchers on the mound that are giving up one or two runs because of those runners on base. And not even that, I think that a lot of times they can get very distracted by the runners too, which could really affect just their pitching performance overall. So I'm excited Mm -hmm. to have um, a more legitimate backstop in McCann. Another question I had for you, JB, is it's interesting because if there is a DH, right, I would imagine that Alonzo would be feeling would be the DH more often than not, given that Smith's a better defensive player. Looking forward, let's just say offensively, is there a guy that you have more confidence in in the future? I know that could be a tough question, but is there a guy that, whether it's Smith or Alonzo, that you put more trust in offensively?
1: Um, I think I think Alonzo, just because his power can be so game breaking, and you know that's kind of the way the, the game is moving right now. Um, you know, where teams are, you know, loading up. I mean, the Mets, you know, we're talking about base running against them. The other thing is base running themselves. You know, the Mets haven't haven't been very good on the base paths. They've added some guys to improve in that area, but the point of the old fashioned, you know, manufacturing runs versus the, you know, th- just relying on power. I think Alonso obviously gives you more of that. Um, so yeah, I think I like Alonso more in that regard. You know, Dom Smith, I'm interested though, because he just seems like he's really, you know, a good kid that's just trying to improve his, his craft. So I wouldn't be surprised if he finds, you know, if he finds a role maybe different than how we're looking at it now, once he's given a little more time to figure it out.
0: Definitely. Just a few more items uh, that I wanted to cover clearly with spring training taking place right now, is there something that you year in year out try to focus on spring training? I find for me, it's usually the pitching and really just staying healthy. But do you put much weight in a spring training? Um, is there a specific position or area of the game that you try to focus on that you think does carry into the regular season?
1: Yeah, I mean it's. Um, we actually just did something looked at did spring training mm-hmm. training records matter, and it turns out they don't, like we would guess, except <laughs> the extremes. So if you go like twenty five and five or whatever in spring, you probably have a pretty good roster. In in it, it is true like teams that have won at least seventy percent of games there's a high correlation they do well and then opposite if you go five and 25 you're in trouble so i'm i'm always kind of like as a fan i'm like just don't be terrible like there's been some years the mets have done that recently where they'll lose a bunch of these spring games and i'm like all right spring training i don't want to worry but i don't want to be five and 25 either but in terms of um you know it's health but i think you know like you said it's with the pitchers um that's what i've focused on more because you're kind of getting an idea of like what do they feel comfortable with already i mean stroman to come out and throw that new pitch the split change and for it to already be you know getting swings and misses and it's seemingly feeling good for him i mean that's a good sign um you know where hitters you know i it's almost like they'll joke with themselves they don't want to waste hits down in florida um, I have more confidence that they can figure things out, especially as, you know, you come up, the weather changes now it's colder. It's almost like a whole new readjustment period. So really the pitching and just don't lose too many games and stay healthy. Yes. Yeah, staying healthy agreed has got to be
0: paramount for the Mets, hopefully just going into the season at full strength. Just looking at the division, JB, I heard on hot stove. Uh, I think it was two weeks ago. They mentioned the Mets had an 85% chance to win division. I thought that was a bit ridiculous. I'd think i like to hear your thoughts, of course, but I think we may be discounting. Of course, we know the Braves are an extremely talented team that made some key additions this offseason, but even the Nationals, who I know struggled a lot last season, we'll see what Strasburg's health looks like, but it wouldn't surprise me if the Nationals were competitive all season long, too. So I don't think, I think that 85% is certainly too high, and I think a lot of us, are looking at the Braves as that other team to compete with. But I think the Nationals are there too, primarily just because of the pitching that they have and the fact that you could argue that Soto is the best player in the National League.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's kind of neat that, you know, with with Lindor now, with the Mets, I mean, you know, you have some big star power there. Um, yeah, like the, the NL East, I mean, obviously in NL West, you got the the Dodgers and the Padres, but then that's it. Um, and the central is, is really, no one really sticks out to you. I mean, I know Arenado trade, you know, maybe a little bit changes that, but it's like the NL East, you could argue, is the most competitive division top to bottom. Cause even the Marlins, you, you can't count them out, obviously. Right. So I think it's odd that's 85% for that reason. More than I'm worried, like I would say the Braves is the team to worry about the most. But it's just the fact that there's so many teams that are going to be competitive and the schedule's not balanced. So you're, you're just battling every single night. Um, I, you know, I don't see it as a division where, you know, if you were in, if the Mets were in the central, then I would say, yeah, there's a good chance they could just run away with this thing. But yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't see it in the East. I, I think there's just too much depth where teams, teams that might not win the division are still going to be tough, you know, tough to go in and, you know, sweep or do the things you need to do if you're going to run away with the division.
0: Definitely. There'll be no easy series in the NL East. I wanted to ask you, just to wrap it up, JB, do you go to a lot of Mets games in the past? Obviously, prior to this pandemic, do you you had to City Field a good amount?
1: Yeah, no, I'll go. I mean, I'm in Connecticut, so it's, it's oh, a we're little bit- Oh, where in Connecticut? Of, I'm on Central Connecticut, so I'm about okay. two hours from City. yeah. Got it. I'm um, uh,
0: originally from Westport, Connecticut.
1: Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, my brother's in Redding, so I'm gotcha. near that area. Um, but yeah, so I'll go, you know, I'd say like eight to 10 times in a normal year. So I'm, I'm definitely excited to, to finally get back on that, but that's usually what I'll do like eight to 10, eight to 10 games. Just a question I wanted to ask
0: you, is there a specific game maybe over the last five years that stands out to you that you attended or even watched? that, uh, we'll stick with attended that just sticks out to you in a game that you'll remember.
1: Well, I was lucky with my dad when they made the World Series run. We got to go to uh, Game One of the World Series, so so that one was you know special. And um, if, if I went back, you said five years, so I was thinking of that one. But if I went back, it's the game against the Braves when Mike Piazza hit the home run. They showed on the classic games now, but the Mets were down and they won ten to eight, and they they came. I'm trying to remember. It feels like eight to one uh, late in that game, but we were at that game, and I was really young. So I didn't mm-hmm. remember like I it's almost like my memory was built up more now watching the classic of it, but I at least remember the you know feeling of being there. Um, so you know, those two stick out in my mind. And uh funny enough though, with going through this pandemic, it's literally just I was thinking about this the other day, like De Grand would come out with the simple man is his warm-up song. <laughs> and I was like, just on like a nice sunny day, you're sitting there, that's playing in the background, de Grand, like. I'll just take that. It can. It's like a Tuesday night. You know, a t- Tuesday. The sun's still out because it's summer. Um, I'll take that coming out of the winter too.
0: <laughs> Definitely no. It's those small things, even just standing up or trying to get people to stand up with two strikes in the first inning on someone. I was fortunate enough to attend Game One of the World Series as well, okay. um, or I guess Game Three, but the first home game. Yeah, that's what um, you, yeah, yeah. And I remember. I think the. I mean, yes, the Mets won that game. I remember David Wright had a good game, but I think the best moment of that game was the first pitch when Senegar threw it right under Escobar's chin and that crowd that was so ready to just unwind um, was so pumped up just to see our tough pitcher, give him some chin music and kind of show him that we weren't going to go down easy. So I remember that. Yeah. I'm looking forward to go to some games, hopefully in a more normal atmosphere. I know even, I mean, I know guys like Alonzo kind of feed off that. So I'm looking forward. Um, just to attend some Mets games in the future, hopefully later this season.
1: Yeah. Well, it was funny too. And, and you're right. Uh, game three, I'm thinking of the first home game, but I, we were, we were in the upper deck and there was this guy sitting by us and he was like killing. Cause you know, right. If you remember, he was struggling a bit. So a lot of fans wanted him out of the lineup. And I remember he came up and the guy was like, I swear to God, if David Wright does something, I'm taking my pants off. And then Wright did something. <laughs> and I just, it was just like one of those classic, like only like, what other like event would you get like a bunch of people together and, and like these type of things come up and happen. And it's just, you know, it's this weird thing we do as fans, but it, it was funny.
0: No, that's awesome. There's not much better Yeah, Right. Hit that, uh, hit that home run and then did this little crow hop around the bases. Yeah. It yeah, yeah. gives me chills even thinking about that, but yeah, I'm excited. JB, I appreciate you taking the time to join us and everyone. Definitely go follow at MetsFix. subscribe to the newsletter. Great content there as far as analytics, opinions. Um, and I look forward to reading your content throughout the season. Thanks for joining us.
1: All right, yeah, thanks for having me. I
0: appreciate it.